Hello and welcome to this fifth episode of Religions of the World and the Restored Gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is James Holt and I am your host. Today we'll be focusing on Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma and the Restored Gospel of Jesus Christ. And although this is the fifth episode, um, it is a, it is, you are able to listen um, without having listened to any of the other four, though I will make references back. Um, there is no reason for you to have to go back unless you really want to, and I would encourage you to do so as well. Now, before I begin and explore Hinduism and its relationship to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a few things that I think underpin my approach to engaging with people of other faith and, and of religions in general. And the first one is with regards to our own faith and practice. So I am approaching um, other religions as I have my whole life or my whole adult life anyway, um, against the background of being a faith practitioner, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what is most important when I engage with people of faith and when I engage with uh, books and other things, then I don't neglect my own faith and religious practice. It's incumbent on me to study, to pray, to attend the temple, to partake of the sacrament, all kinds of things, and to serve within um, my local community as well. And all of those keep me rooted where I am in the restored gospel. Similarly, um, it keeps me rooted with regards to uh, pillars of my testimony. So with regards to the atonement of our saviour and also the restoration of the gospel and the first vision and, and their legacies. So those kind of keep me rooted. But as I do so, I am also open to appreciating the truth found in other religions and helping that develop my own religious practice and understanding. And as I always do, when I try and understand um, other faiths, I try and do it on their own terms, in the sense that I would rather have an accurate representation and understanding of what people believe, rather than what people say they, uh, observers say they believe as well. And this is perhaps more important than in any other of the religions that we explore tonight as we explore Hinduism, is that it's messy, it's, it's diverse, and I'll explain why that is the case. And we need to recognize that even though I'm talking about certain beliefs and practices, uh, for some Hindus, perhaps they may not recognize some of the things that I say. We're not comparing our best to their worst. Um, we're talking about Hinduism on its own terms and we're able to have holy envy for certain things and also be open to, de uh, to developing our own religious practice and un understanding. And outside all of that, with the knowledge of and an understanding of Hinduism as a whole, if that can ever be the case, um, then we're able to be in a position to help others live their religion. Now, I mentioned a moment ago about how um, Hinduism is, is rather messy. And what do I mean by that? Well, Nehru, who was the first prime minister of modern India, he said, Hinduism as a faith is vague, amorphous, many-sided, all things to all men. It's hardly possible to define it or indeed say definitely whether it's a religion or not in the usual sense of the word. In its present form, and even in the past, it embraces many beliefs and practices from the highest to the lowest, often opposed to or contradicting each other. So this, is, this highlights the, the problem when we explore Hinduism, is, is there's no kind of definition. And part of the reason for that is the colonial history of it. So Hinduism as a term wasn't known until the 19th century. It was a Western colonial imposition, if you like. 
in seeking to categorize, in seeking to make it easier to manage the peoples of India, um, British colonialists felt the need to establish the beliefs and practices of people who lived near the River Indus, so in the Indus Valley and, and um, southeast of that, into a systematized structure. And unfortunately, this isn't something that should have been possible because Hinduism or the religions or the way that people lived were very varied. And so essentially, the British colonists said, well, you all live in kind of the same area, do similar things, so therefore we will call you Hindus. And so this, I think, is, is the problematic beginning, if you like, of Hinduism. Because although Hinduism as a, as a whole can be seen to be hun maybe hundreds of thousands of years old and building on Vedic religion and in Indus Valley culture and all different kinds of things, and certainly some of the traditions are ancient, Hinduism is only a couple of centuries old as a, as a reified, as a structured belief system. And so what we kind of have to do is just recognize that there's so much diversity within. A man called John Morial has said, um, these diverse identities were united, each an integral part of life. No part existed in a separate sphere identified as religious nor were the diverse tradition, traditions lumped together under the term Hinduism. So people just lived their lives. There was no, and we've discussed this before in terms of what is religion, there's no separation of secular and spiritual. Everything was just a part of life. And as we explore aspects of Hinduism, I think it becomes evident that the, the split or the ability to separate the religious from the non-religious part of life is very, very difficult. So um, a man called Bob Jackson, um, who has studied um, religious education an awful lot, he suggests that there's no such thing as Hinduism, only Hindus. And so there are various names that are suggested. So, for example, Sanatana Dharma, which essentially means eternal, maybe eternal law, eternal religion, eternal duty. It, it's, it's a bit of a difficult word to translate. Um, is a better way to approach Hinduism. Um, other people suggest Hindu Dharma. The problem with that is it still maintains its vestiges of, of colonialism. So I'm going to use Hinduism today because it's, it's the way that it is um, presented and it has been through hundreds of years. But I think it's important to recognize that that is an imposed term. And although many Hindus would describe themselves as Hindus today, it is an imposed term that comes loaded with things. But we've recognized that. And I, I, by no means do I mean any, any disrespect by using that term. And although there is, <coughs> and although there is kind of um, the problem of messiness, um, Jackson and Killingly suggest that although Hinduism may not have a universally accepted core, it does have a family of distinctive concepts and social structures. And it also has certain tendencies in practice and belief. So I think one of the most central aspects of Hinduism and of a Hindu's life is Dharma. Dharma is often translated religion, law, but I think it's best translated, if you like, though it never does quite what it's supposed to do, as duty. Rasamandala Das suggests that the word itself comes from the Sanskrit root dri, which means to sustain. 
Another related meaning is that which is integral to something. For example, the dharma of sugar is to be sweet and the dharma of fire is to be hot. Therefore, a person's dharma consists of duties that sustain him or her according to their innate characteristics. Such characteristics are both material and spiritual. So <laughs> I really like the idea of this, which is that that which is integral to something. So as, as he mentioned, the, the dharma of sugar is to be sweet. And so I would imagine that, um, for example, with regards to animals, they have a specific dharma. So the dharma of a cat is to be cat-like. And so they quite naturally fulfill that responsibility or um, in Latter-day Saint terms, fulfill the measure of their creation. For humans, we have an ability to choose and to break out of our dharma, if you like. And, and so therefore um, to go against it and perhaps gain good karma or negative karma, uh, which all affects a, a positive rebirth or a negative rebirth or reincarnation. So we have this idea. And so when we look at what it is to be, to have dharma, it is the essential aspect or the essential duties or responsibilities that a person is born to fulfill. And within Hinduism, there are a number of different ways that can be seen. So, for example, when we look at virtues or characteristics, one such virtue or characteristic is ahimsa or um, not to harm any living thing. And this is something that you can find in Buddhism, in Jainism as well, is ahimsa is without harm to to not cause harm to things. The Mahabharata in uh, chapter 13 suggests that ahimsa is the highest dharma. Ahimsa is the highest self-control. It's the greatest gift, the best practice, the highest sacrifice, the finest strength, the greatest friend, the greatest happiness, the highest truth, and the greatest teaching. And so this shows Ahimsa is just one virtue among many, um, but it is one of those virtues that forms a part of a Hindu's dharma or their duty. Perhaps the most famous proponent of Ahimsa is Gandhi, Mahandas Gandhi, who... Um, very much influenced people like Martin Luther King with nonviolence. And so in trying to highlight the abuses and the problems of British control of India and also of South Africa at some points, the idea was that it was nonviolence. And so when Britain said you were not allowed to make salt because of um, economic considerations and, and the salt mines in Britain, um, Gandhi walked across um, part of India and made salt from the sea. And so this was an act of um, resistance, but it wasn't a violent act, but obviously, not obviously, but the British responded violently. And so therefore, it is seen to be at Ahimsa. Now, there's different levels, and it's one reason why um, many, not all Hindus, will be vegetarian, um, because it is a part of not harming any living thing. I mentioned Jainism before, and Jainism is, is a religion of India, um, although it's kind of becoming more global. And in some ways, where Hindus would say that it's important not to cause intentional harm, um, Jains would extend this to unintentional. So you may see Jains in India who walk down the street with a very soft brush, um, kind of brushing their path to not inadvertently step on an ant or something like that. So generally speaking within Hinduism, it's intentional harm that is the focus rather than, than unintentional, though 
there are different levels of adherence to ahimsa. So this is one aspect of Dharma, which is the living of virtues. And with regards to other aspects of, of Dharma or of duty, there are various stages of life or ashramas. And in each of these stages of life, there are different responsibilities for a Hindu. So the various stages are the Brahmacharya, which is the, the student phase, the Grihastha or the householder stage, the Vanaprastha, which is the retirement, and the Sanyas, which is the um, ascetic stage. And within each of these stages of life, there is certain there are certain responsibilities, and there are kind of age guidance to this as well, though those are flexible, especially as we um, have moved into the modern world. So for example, a, a person is a student. Now it should be noted that these are traditionally seen to be male. Um, women are a part of these stages as well, but the responsibilities very much of, of um, the ashramas are focused on the responsibilities of a man, but that has begun to change. So if we look at the Brahmacharya or the student phase, this is until about 24, and this is where a person's responsibility is to learn. And that will be learning both in a secular sense, so preparing for a career or for um, a job, but also in terms of um, learning religiously. And so the two aspects are combined in this. It's not that they're separated, but within the student um, stage, we have various um, secular responsibilities of learning, but we also have those spiritual um, responsibilities of learning. And this carries on very much into the householder stage, which runs from about the age of 24 to 48, or until your children no longer have claim upon you, if you like, or you know, have, no longer have that financial responsibility for your children. And so it is a Hindu's responsibility to marry, um, and part of their duty to marry, and, and it's a way that they sustain social and religious obligations. But every aspect of a Hindu's life during this stage is a part of that duty. So um, earning an honest living, keeping a religious home, um, going to the mandir, uh, having a shrine within your homes, observing all of those religious celebrations and so on. All of these things are combined. And I think this is really interesting in the sense that there isn't this definition between religious and non-religious. Everything in all of these stages is seen to be part of a person's duty or a person's dharma. Within retirement, um, they can now take a step back and devote more time to quiet study of the scriptures and meditation. Um, and then some people will go into the renunciate stage where um, they will kind of completely re renounce all worldly possessions and just search um, for religious truth and so on. But we have all of these stages. And then you think, well, as a Latter-day Saint, how does Dharma link with anything that we do? And I, I mentioned briefly about fulfilling the measure of our creation. And that's part of it is that we are born with certain responsibilities. Now, there are aspects of Dharma that are highly contentious within Hindu society. So there's something called Varnashrama Dharma, which is the idea that society is structured into four Varnas, or you may know it as the caste system, where you have the uh, Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the, the Vaishyas, the Shudras, and then the untouchables who are outside of that caste system or outcasts, if you like. 
and each of these determine what job you would do, who you can marry and everything else. Now, there are many Hindus that see this as a, as a cultural or a social, socio-political structure that was established in history. There are some Hindus that see it as, as very much part of the religion based on, on scriptures and the laws of Manu. But very much today, caste is breaking down and the, and the um, kind of relationship between castes is breaking down, though you will still find that in some areas. So just as Hin some Hindus would reject that, as Latter-day Saints, we would also reject aspects of that aspect of Dharma where society is structured and you have a, a certain path to fill no matter because of where you're born and what, you're do what you do. It reminds me of a conference talk that was given just this last conference where um, uh, the speaker, and I can't remember who it is, spoke about starting at different points, but just as so long as we're on an upward trajectory, that's what's important. And I think that is a part of that. But also with regards to duty, there are certain responsibilities that we have, maybe with regards to the covenant path, because we have taken upon ourselves various covenants, then it means that we have stopped, that we've taken upon ourselves um, greater responsibilities, and we live according to those covenants. And it's, it's about every aspect of our discipleship, not just the religious ones, every aspect of our lives should be lived to allow God to prevail in our lives. So the way that I live my life as a husband, as a father, um, as a university lecturer, as all kinds of things should reflect my discipleship. And I think this is very similar to the idea of Dharma and Hinduism. There are significant differences, don't get me wrong, but it is a way. And I think when we read, for example, Alma 34, beginning in verse 17, we realize that it's not just the religious or the so-called religious bits that we need to be focused on. So we see, for example, Alma, who's, who's talking about what we should pray for. He, cry, he talks about for mercy, um, cry unto him over your fields, over all your flocks, in your houses, over your household, against the, your enemy, or against the power of your enemies, against the devil, over the crops of your field, the flocks of your field, and, and carries on. And it's, it's like, well, actually, that covers just about every aspect of my life. And that's where the gospel should permeate. And sometimes we talk about the armor of God. And we see that sometimes as something that's bolt-on and bolt-offable. But actually, the armor of God is something that should be completely fused to us, if you like, that it's not something we take on and off depending on the circumstance. I often liken it to the difference between the Iron Man's costume or armor, which he takes on enough, or Wolverine, Wolverine's adamantium that he's welded or fused to his bones. How do we approach the armor of God? Is it something that we take on and off, or is it something that is integrally part of who we are? And hopefully it should be the latter. Also, as, as I thought about Dharma, um, I was reminded of a book I read probably about 30 years ago by Dallin H. Oaks called Pure in Heart. And he talks about six reasons for service. The first one, he, and, and these kind of go up in importance and, and, and the better the motivation as you move forward. So to obtain worldly honours, prominence or power. Second one is to obtain good companionship, to serve out of fear of punishment, out of a sense of duty or loyalty. Um, for the hope of an eternal reward. And then finally, because we love the Saviour and we love others. So that's obviously the highest um, 
motivation for service. But I think all of us throughout our lives, we kind of have and flow. And Elder Oaks doesn't really say that any of these are necessarily wrong. It's just that there are better motivations as we move up the scale. And I think I can think of lots of, not lots of, but I can think of times where I have served out of duty. So, for example, we had an elders quorum activity on Saturday. Wasn't my bag, but it was something that I went to out of duty. I should have gone because I love my saviour and I love my, my brethren who were there. Um, but we do ebb and flow and, and I can and sometimes when we serve out of duty it turns very quickly into serving out of love because we we get that kind of responsibility and we get that feeling as we engage with others and we and we feel the spirit of what we're doing serving out of duty is fine but it's not the highest motivation that we should be focused on and that is about focusing on our savior and our love for him and our love for those people around us. But it was just an interesting reminder that Elder Oaks talked about this. And so sometimes we do serve out of duty, but there is a better way. So moving on <coughs> and looking at the concept of God within Hinduism. So there is the popular perception um, that Hinduism is polytheist, meaning believing in lots of gods. Um, but let me read to you this poem, if you like. Grandmother, how many gods are there? Well, there are as many gods as there are creatures, so there must be 300 million gods. Grandmother, how many gods are there really? 3,000, my child. Grandmother, how many gods are there really? 300, my child. Grandmother, how many gods are there really? 30. Grandmother, how many gods are there really? Three, my child. Grandmother, how many gods are there really? One, my child, really. And so this is the, the, the kind of concept that very much Hinduism or Hindus teach today, though there will be differences and we will explore those in a few minutes. Um, Hindus have no difficulty in accepting that God is one and yet has many different forms and is manifested. So Hindus believe that there is one universal spirit, God, called Brahman, who is or which is present throughout the entire universe and is symbolized by the symbol Om which you will see is the um, symbol of Hinduism, A-U-M. And if you could list, this is a sacred vibration, and if you could listen to the sound that thing, living things make when they are not making any noise at all, then the sound that they would make is Om. And you will have seen this in meditations and different things that you will have encountered. But this is a symbol for the presence of the spark of the divine, which is within everything. And so Brahman dwells for Hindus in all creatures as the innermost spirit or true self. This belief of the interconnectedness of nature and all living things can be used as a basis for the teaching of Ahimsa or the injunction not to harm any living thing. Now, as we think about this from a Latter-day Saint perspective, and, and yes, this is kind of different, but we look at, for example, the light of Christ or the spirit of Christ. Let me read you this from, from Bruce O'Maconkey. He says, there is a spirit, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Christ, the light of truth, the light of Christ that defies description and is beyond mortal comprehension. It is in us and in all things. It's around us and around all things. It fills the earth and the heavens and the universe. It's everywhere in all immensity without exception. It's an indwelling, imminent, ever present, never absent spirit. It has neither shape nor form nor personality. 
It is not an entity, nor a person, nor a personage. It has no agency, does not act independently, and exists not to act, but to be acted upon. So obviously, it sounds very similar, but, but Brahman is, is God, and the light of Christ is, is not. Um, but it is a kind of a power, or it is a, a presence. And if we look at it as the light of Christ, sometimes we see the light of Christ as just a conscience type thing, which it is, definitely. And we read in Moroni 6 how it is. But at the same time, it is also the spark of divinity that is within everything. And for Hindus, that has a, an in, incredible impact on the way that they view creation and the interconnectedness and the environmental kind of ethics that they have. And then perhaps we think about that in terms of the light of Christ and how it's in every living thing. Well, should that therefore affect the way that we view creation and we view other aspects of creation and, and the responsibilities that we have with it? So although the light of Christ is different to Brahman, it does have parallels and it does make me begin to think in same way, in, in similar ways as to how we should treat creation and how we should respect um, aspects of it or all aspects of it as well. So it's 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 an interesting um, comparison and one that makes me think. So returning back to the idea of God or Brahman within Hinduism, I suppose there's a question, is Hinduism monotheistic, polytheistic or animistic? So monotheistic, one God, polytheistic, many gods, animistic, kind of a presence that's within everything and, and, and God is within everything. And actually, I think the answer is yes. It's all three of those, depending on which Hindus that you speak to, how Brahman is particularly understood. And in the sense that Brahman has many forms in different ways. And so what Hindus may say, and certainly Hindus I've spoken to say, is, okay, there are many manifestations. So there's Brahma, Vishnu, Shiv, um, Hanuman, Rama, um, Agni, all different kinds of, of deities, if you like. And some of the Hindus, or many of the Hindus that I've spoken to, said, well, they are ways in the past that people have begun to make sense of certain aspects of the divine. And so the idea of Brahman as this um, kind of um, Naguna Brahman, which has no form, no attributes and, and everything else and, and kind of fills the immensity of space is hard to grasp. And so people in the past, what they've done is they've um, imagined representations of aspects of that divine so that they can better engage with them. So, for example, when we look at Ganesh, who's the god of knowledge or the deity of knowledge or the deity of destroying obstacles, then it's easier to focus on that kind of being than it is to focus on Brahman. And, and in essence, what Hindus are doing when they worship Brahma or when they worship Vishnu or they worship Ganesh is they're worshiping the idea of Brahman that is behind that being. And so there are differences of opinion as to whether those deities are exist. They're certainly real in the sense that they are uh, used and that they do form part of a Hindu's understanding, but whether they actually exist is, is a whole other question. And for many Hindus, it is the idea of the divine that is behind them. And we can see this in, in certain other aspects 
Um, so, for example, when we look at um, there's, there's a group called B, uh, BAPS, B-A-P-S, um, which is Swami Narayan, and there are um, uh, Swami Narayan is seen to embody some of the characteristics of deity, but also if we look at um, Lord Vishnu, who is the focus of worship, what you have is you have a deity who is woken up, who is bathed, who is clothed, who is fed, and so he's very much treated as though um, he is a living functional form with, within um, the world. So there are differences of opinion within Hinduism as to um, monotheism, polytheism, and, and, and all other kinds of um, approaches to deity. Now, there are three main forms. No, there's not three main forms. There's something called the Trimurti, uh, which are the three preeminent forms of, of Brahman or manifestations of Brahman. The first one is Brahma, who is the creator. And if you look at images of Brahma, you will see that he's holding certain symbols which symbolize certain things. Um, so, for example, he's often holding the Vedas or the holy books in his hands, which helped him create the universe. But Brahma, and, and he is different to Brahman, so please notice the difference. There's Brahman, who's the universal spirit, and Brahma who is the creator and a manifestation of an aspect of Brahman. Um, but he's not worshipped very much anymore because his work is done. The two main forms, if you like, or umbrella traditions of um, Hinduism are Vaishnavites and Shavites. Uh, Vaishnavites follow Lord Vishnu and um, Shavites follow Lord Shiva or Lord Shiva. So Vishnu is the second part of the Trimurti and he is the preserver. And he is seen to come to earth at certain points um, in his avatars um, to save the world from evil. So traditionally, there are seen to be 10 avatars of Vishnu and nine times he has been down already. And one time he will come down at the end of, of the earth. And his purpose at this point is to overcome evil. So there are specific examples that you will probably have heard of. So you may have heard of Rama in terms of Rama and Sita. Uh, you may have heard of Krishna, um, and also the Buddha, who is seen to be an avatar of Vishnu. Um, there are some people um, who believe, for example, that Jesus was an avatar of Vishnu as well within the Hindu kind of pantheon. But interestingly, again, there are different interpretations of this. So for some, yes, um, Vishnu took bodily form and saved uh, the world. Um, from evil in each of these different forms. So, for example, Matsai the fish. But for some, these are figures who um, have exemplified characteristics of Vishnu and of deity. And so, therefore, they are seen to represent his values or his strengths and so on. And so, they are um, inspiring creatures or beings, if you like who represent Vishnu. So there's different interpretations, um, but, that he, but he is believed to have come down. And, and sometimes um, these individual avatars will be worshipped or have puja offered to them um, in their own right. So for example, the, the local mandir that I go to, um, its main shrine is focused around Ram, Rama and Sita. And so offerings are made to Rama. And so, again, we're kind of using these figures as ways to understand the divine. And so a person who worships or offers puja to 
Rama is really only doing so to Vishnu and is really only doing so to Brahman, but they're ways of understanding. And I suppose if I look at this from a Latter-day Saint perspective, because this seems in some ways as far removed um, from Latter-day Saint beliefs as, as perhaps we can go. But actually, I have a friend who struggles with the idea of following the saviour because he is so perfect. And so what he does is he uses other people as a stepping stone. So he'll try and be as patient, for example, as his sister-in-law, um, who is trying to emulate the saviour. So it's, it's kind of that. So do we do that, I guess, is the question. And there are other things within Hinduism, for example. So I watched a programme the other year uh, where Sachin Tendulkar was a uh, statue within a Hindu village and offerings were made to him. Now, he, for those that don't know, Sachin Tendulkar is, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest batsman in cricket who's ever lived. Um, he was still alive at that point. So why were people making offerings to him? Well, it's because he manifested, if you like, some of the attributes of the divine. So it helped people learn about aspects of Brahman. So it's about the idea that these beings or these manifestations are able to help people connect with the divine. And then the final aspect of the Trimurti. So there's Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiv or Shiva, the destroyer. And, and Lord Shiva tends to come in three different forms. There's Shiva Nataraj, Shiva Yogaraj, and Shiva Lingam. So Shiva Nataraj is often seen as um, the Lord of the dance, and you will see him in, in kind of a ring of fire, and he will have a drum that is kind of beating that keeps the universe going. So he is the Lord, the destroyer, but at the same time, at the same time out of destruction comes creation. So he's often prayed to or um, made offerings towards um, because of creation. And so you, we can see in Shiva Lingam, which is a fertility symbol, um, that people pray to him for fertility. And then the Shiva Yogaraj, who is a meditative figure, and people will pray to him and reflect on that. And, and as with all manifestations of the divine, each of the objects that these beings or manifestations hold or murtis hold, so murti is a statue of a deity, they remind the worshipper of a specific characteristic. So if we look at Ganesh, who is the son of Lord Shiva, he holds an axe because he is able to destroy ignorance or destroy obstacles that are in our way. Or he uses, he also holds a goad, which is used to guide elephants. And so he can guide people. So there's lots of different things. And then there's, there's other deities as well. So Durga and, um, is, is a specific, and Kali are specific aspects of the divine that are the feminine. And these are worshipped um, during the month, uh, during the days of uh, Navaratri, which kind of focus on aspects of the, the feminine. Um, and so people will, will use those as a focus. Now, in saying that there is a deity for most things, some Hindus or many Hindus will just have a, have a family deity that they will utilize as a way to understand Brahman. And so, yes, there's all different kinds, but some will use lots. Some will use only a few. And so it's interesting as we explore Hinduism, particularly to explore the, the pantheon, if you like, of, of, of Hindu deities and what they can help the worshipper understand. And if we begin to understand this, we can, we can understand very much so that Hindus are not 
um, as is popularly portrayed, idol worshippers or, or anything like that. But it's just the idea that there are different ways to understand um, deity or, or God. As I said, it, it's quite difficult to draw parallels. Um, and when I was discussing this with my institute class um, in terms of what can we learn, it is difficult, but it is possible to begin to reflect and perhaps have a greater understanding. Another aspect um, of, of Hinduism that I'd like to explore is the scriptures. So there's two types. There's Shruti, what is heard or revealed, and Smriti, which is what is remembered. And the Vedas tend to be Shruti, though there are um, examples of Smriti Vedas as well. But the Vedas are kind of those that describe rituals and contain hymns and prayers and kind of how to go about kind of living religiously, if you like. And so those are very important, for example, to the Brahmins, who are the priests within um, Hinduism. But then there are others, and there's lots, lots of others, but one of the others is, um, are known as epics. Um, and I'll come back to those. Let me just mention what the Vedas are first of all. So Veronica Boyle said, to Hindus, the truths of the Vedas were first revealed at the beginning of human creation for the benefit of humankind and their timeless and eternal truths. And I was talking to a Hindu once who said, the Vedas are the unifying feature of Hinduism. But perhaps the most utilized are the epics. And Rasmandala Das notes that for popular purposes in the UK, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the Puranas, and the Bhagavad Gita are most commonly used. And so they are stories that are used to embody, if you like, and show people how to behave in the application of Vedic principles. And you can often see them um, in carvings on temples or in comic books or on television. Indeed, uh, when the Ramayana was serialized on TV in the 1980s in India, um, life in cities, towns and villages came to a standstill. And it was estimated that over 80 million people in India watched it in a place at the time where many people didn't own TVs. And so the epics are, are perhaps the best way or the, or the most common way, not necessarily the best way, but the most common way that Hindus engage with, with scripture. And so, for example, we have the story of the Ramayana, which is the story of Rama and Sita, where Vishnu took form as um, Rama to save the world from the evil demon king Ravana, who had 10 heads. And so he was able, as a youth, to win the um, affections and um, the lady Sita as his bride by utilizing the divine weapon, which is symbolized in the story as a, as a massive bow and arrow. They marry, and then because of the um, jealousy of his stepmother, he is uh, kicked out of his kingdom, he's denied um, his throne, and he lives in a forest. And then Ravana kidnaps his wife, Sita. And with the help of others such as Hanuman and Jatayu and, 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 and others, um, Rama is able to claim or get Sita back. And he's able to do this by the divine weapon, which although it's a bow and arrow, is, is seen in the story to be the Vedas, the recitation of scriptures. And as part of this story, um, and he kills Ravana with this, with this bow and arrow, and then Sita is... Um, 
reconciled, if you like, or saved uh, with Rama. And she's and, and Rama says, look, I, I love you and I know you have been faithful, but I can't take you back into my household because other people think that because you've lived in the, another man's house. So she said, look, I will walk through this fire and um, it will be proved that I am pure. So she walks through the fire and they're welcomed home to their kingdom um, with diva lamps, with light. So it's a Hindu festival of light. Now, question is, is this story true? Well, yes, it is from a Hindu perspective. But what it means by true may be different to what is traditionally meant. So it teaches important truths. So for example, at the most base level, it teaches that good has overcome evil. But it also teaches that when, uh, that, for example, there are 10 vices, if you like, or 10 characteristics of their person um, that are negative. And so Rama was able to destroy those that were symbolized by Ravana's heads with the divine weapon, which is scriptures. So scriptures help Hindus overcome those, I suppose, specific attributes that will drag them down. There are other truths that are taught within the story. So I suppose the question I really meant when I said, is this story true, is did it really happen? And for Hindus, it doesn't really matter whether it happened or not. It's the truths that it illustrates that are most important. And there will be Hindus that say, yes, definitely. And there will be Hindus that say, uh, no, it's just teaching important truth. And we can look at other stories um, from Bhagavad Gita and others that kind of show really fantastic uh, um, elements. And what's important for Hindus is that these stories teach them Vedic principles and stories that will help them live a good Hindu life according to their Dharma. And I think that's really interesting for us as Latter-day Saints, because one of the conversations um, I had with um, a friend of mine um, recently was about the reality, not the reality, the truthfulness of Job. So um, is Job historically accurate? Did Job live? Um, and does it matter? Now, we read in section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants that thou art not yet as Job, thy friends don't contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression as they did Job. So my friend says, no, no, well, this proves that there was a person such as Job. But it's possible to interpret that scripture, if you like, to say, well, the Lord is referring to the figure in literature of Job. Now, bear with me on this. Um, so John Tanner, in a book uh, from the Sperry Symposium, the Old Testament, uh, which was 2005, he says, one question with which many readers grapple as they consider Job is its historicity. Is the book of Job history or story? He then goes on, I'm not persuaded that the answer to the question makes much decisive difference for the interpretation of the text. So yes, there are, and, and summarizing what he said, there are literary devices that are used that suggest it's a poem, that it is based on certain literary devices that were in play in Hebrew society. But then he carries on. This doesn't mean, however, that Job is pure fiction. Both the prose narrative frames and the poetic dialogues may be based on the actual experiences of a real man. A good man who lost everything, was pressured to confess to hidden sins, but maintained his integrity, implored God for answers and vindication, and finally received revelation and renewed prosperity. So 
he suggests that maybe the kernel um, of the story is, is based on this historical figure. Because, for example, if I look at the bet, if you like, or the conversation between the Lord and Satan, I struggle with that kind of a view of a deity that can make that kind of bargain. So when I look at the story, I think, okay, yeah, may well be true. And what I need to do, though, is to look at the meaning behind it. And that's important. So rather than getting hung up on, did these things actually happen? I can kind of think, well, actually, it doesn't matter whether it happened or not. What is the truth that the Lord is trying to teach me? I would also say the same for the story of Hosea, which I referred to last week when we talked about Judaism and it being an allegory or a metaphor for um, God's relationship with his chosen people or, or Israel. And, and that his relationship with Goma is symbolic or Hosea's relationship with Goma is symbolic of um, God's relationship with Israel, which is really interesting. So does that mean Hosea was a historical figure or not? Don't know, don't mind. And in some ways, I kind of look to that with regards to aspects of creation as well. So I know there's differing opinions within the church about whether uh, the story of creation as recorded in Genesis is historically accurate. Um, but I would say that really it doesn't matter, though I would fall on the side of probably not, but it's the truths that it teaches that are important. Now, I do recognise very much that as I embark on this road, um, there are limits. And so, for example, I have, I, I believe the, the Gospels, when they talk about uh, Jesus raising Lazarus, being raised from the dead, uh, feeding 5,000 men and women and children um, with five loaves and two fish, I believe all of those things. And I wouldn't want to see those as, well, they may not have happened, but what is it teaching me? Similarly, with us, with the Book of Mormon, I believe that's um that's true both in terms of it actually happening and the things that it can teach me so we have both there are limitations to that and so we need to be careful that we're not interpreting metaphorically what was not meant to be a metaphor and allegory but in some ways that's where the spirit comes in and and that's not to take away from the fact that sometimes we read stories as well and certain elements are given precedence or given focus um, because of the motivations of the writer. So when we read, for example, the two nativity stories where Matthew very much highlights the visitation of uh, the Magi or the wise men or the kings to the baby Jesus and Luke is using the shepherds as visitors, doesn't mean that neither happened because, because neither mentions both. It's that they chose to focus on certain elements because of the audience. So for example, Luke was writing to a Roman Greek audience who may have been threatened by the idea of kings visiting the baby Jesus. So they chose to emphasize certain aspects. One of my favorite examples of that is when um, Peter and the beloved disciple are uh, running to the tomb um, after, the, after they've been told that Jesus is risen and they're engaged in a foot race and John's gospel records that it was run it was won by the disciple that Jesus loved most and who happens to be John who's writing that gospel so there's lots and lots of different things that we can look at within scripture and actually it's the message of what can I learn about my savior and my relationship from the savior that is most important when we explore the scriptures 
And those are the things that really we need to focus upon. Now, I've only touched on a couple of aspects of Hinduism today, but I think it's a, it's a vibrant religion. It's very different, for example, to the Abrahamic faiths that we've looked at so far in terms of Judaism and perhaps ones we're more familiar with like Islam and Christianity. But there are aspects of it that just help us understand the way that Hindus live their lives and also what we can learn. And I'm grateful that you've, you've spent the time to listen with me today as we've explored um, how Hindus live and perhaps what we can learn from engagement with Hindus themselves. Now, our next session um, is on Buddhism and the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're sticking with what are traditionally known as Dharmic religions. We will explore what that means more next week. But I'm grateful for you listening in and I hope you have enjoyed today's session. <laughs>